0: Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for speaking to us, to giving us your word, uh, to encouraging us in these difficult times, to knowing that even through the difficulty and the struggle and the pain and the suffering, that you have a plan for it. You You have an idea of what you want that to accomplish in our lives. Father, just help us to to understand that and to look for that. As we go through this week, as these things come up, as struggles and and trials and sufferings come up, Lord, help us to look for those moments, what you're trying to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in chapter 4 in the study, and this is uh, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 4, 6. So the question that he asks at the beginning, he's talking about uh, his statement is some experts state that approximately 200 million Christians worldwide, 200 million Christians worldwide, face continual threat of harassment, torture, and even death because of their faith in Christ. It's believed that more followers of Christ were martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19th century combines. Why do you think God allows His people to go through affliction and trial? So let's look at what peter has to say about this so let's read through just like we've done before uh, 13 to 4 6 and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness you are blessed and do not fear their fear and do not be troubled but sanctify christ as lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. So that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, But an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men, But for the will of God, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For to this, the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the spirit according to the will of God. So the first question, what did Peter urge believers to do in the face of suffering? Look back at for, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Say what? Give a defense. Do what? Sanctify the, Lord in your heart. sanctify the Lord in your heart. What does that mean? Okay, that's that's connected to it. But what does it mean to sanctify the Lord in your heart? Now, it depends on which version you have, because this verse is translated very differently across three or four different versions. ESV, uh, New American Standard, King James, all translate it a little differently from each other. But the original Greek means to set apart in your heart Christ as Lord is what the Greek means. So what does that mean? To set apart in your heart Christ as Lord. Okay. Sanctify big fancy Christian word, right? Just means to set something apart. That's all that it means. So if you're sanctifying your heart, you're setting your heart apart to Christ and what he wants and what he desires should be the focus of your heart. So Paul, Peter urges us in, in our suffering to focus on where our heart is. To make sure your heart is focused on Christ Jesus our Lord. And not on the suffering that's going on around us. Why? And think McKamey mentioned this. Why? Okay. You're going to have somebody come up to you and say in that moment when you're suffering in that moment when you have something tragic happen, in that moment when something miserable is going on, and you have set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, and you respond differently to this. Remember, we are sojourners and aliens. You respond differently to this, and people are going to come to you and say, well, I, would never, I wouldn't have I wouldn't responded like that. I wouldn't have done that. Let me tell you what I would have done. And you have to be able to... Make a defense does not mean you defend yourself. It means to explain why you, you are doing the things and believing the things that you believe. So, in these moments of suffering, your response to that suffering is telling the world where your heart lies. Are you responding poorly? Remember, the whole point, if we go back to chapter 2, chapter 1, what's the point of suffering? To prove our faith. So if in the suffering, you're not being very faithful, that should be a warning to you. Second question, he says, what kind of suffering is blessed? He he points, points to verse 14 and verse 16 and 17 kind of suffering is blessed the that comes after you do something, good. something at some the kind that comes after you do something good what does it mean to be blessed we love christians love using that word right people that aren't christians love using that word because it makes them feel spiritual Well have a blessed day Oh, you know, god has blessed me tremendously What does that mean? That's tough, right? Because we all use the word, but not many of us know where that goes. You're blessed for doing what is good. Blessing is an honor of God. You're being honored by God for doing the right thing. The blessing comes not from what's going on around you. But from the one that you're giving glory to by your actions. That blessing is his honor. He's he's honoring you in your faithfulness, in your obedience. Let's look at 14 uh, and 16 and 17. 14 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their fear, do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I'm going to stop there for a second. 15, we kind of moved over 15, but I'm going to come back to it for a second. So you suffer for righteousness sake and you're blessed. Congratulations. But he turns around and says this, do not fear their fear. Some of your versions may say, do not fear their intimidation. Now, I'm going to step into a very delicate area with this next statement over the last three years we've dealt with a lot of things dealing with COVID right we have um, there have been people on one side that were um, people that felt that vaccines were beneficial masks were beneficial there are people on the other side that said that the government's trying to control us, don't do this, don't do that, blah, 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 blah. And we've got this battle going on, even in the church, right? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their fear and do not be troubled. Regardless of where you personally found yourself in that, the question you have to ask yourself is this, and it's a question that I've had to ask myself. Reading through this, why were you responding the way you were responding? Were you responding out of a desire for the righteousness of God to be glorified in that moment, or were you responding out of fear? This side, the fear of a virus, this side, the fear of losing my independence. What was, the, what was the cause of your response? Was it for God's glory or was it because of fear? Either side, both sides dealt with fear. A family that fell on both sides. Arguments came from both sides. And every time I got into these discussions with my family, it was because of fear fear of a virus, which, if you know anything about viruses, there's something to be feared. From a, from a human perspective. Independence. Losing my rights. We live in America. We were given a lot of rights as Americans. That's true. When, who was in charge when Peter was, when Peter was around? Who was in charge of Rome? Nero? One of the most sadistic, hate-filled men on the planet. So it doesn't matter which side you fall on. Fear was everywhere. So what's he say? Do not fear their fear. Why? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. That goes back to what we just talked about, right? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And this is why. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. And this is where a lot of people drop the ball, yet with gentleness and fear. That's where I drop the ball. Anybody who knows me, I knows I'm not a very gentle person. If I got something I think is right, I'm going to tell you I think it's right. This is hard. It's hard to be gentle. But if you watch going through this passage, gentleness comes up a couple of times. Regardless of where you're at on any issue. Are you sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart in that moment? And are you responding with gentleness and fear, reverence, awe of who God is? And that no matter what we've experienced in the last three years, God's still in control of every single thing that happened. Why? Verse 16, having a good conscience. All of this, why? Having a good conscience that in the things in which you are slandered. Those who disparage your good conduct in Christ, good conduct in Christ. You notice it's not separated. Good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Also in verse 14, Peter portrays Christ as the ultimate example of enduring suffering. In what ways was his suffering different from the mistreatment we received? Think of the last time you were mistreated. Does it compare to Christ's mistreatment? Do the reasons for it compare to Christ's mistreatment? I know mine aren't. I'm mistreated because I've done something wrong. I've said something wrong. I've looked at somebody wrong. Christ did nothing wrong. Yet he was still mistreated. But in what ways is our suffering for righteousness sake? Similar to Christ's. What did ultimately his suffering accomplish? Yes, but I don't think that was the most important thing. Brings God glory. His obedience, his faithfulness, his saving of us brings God glory. So how does our suffering for righteousness sake picture Christ's suffering? same answer folks in this way we picture Christ that when we respond to suffering in a righteous way and we are suffering for righteous deeds that God is glorified in that just like in Christ's suffering God was glorified in that Jesus said not my will but yours be done let's look at verses 18 to 22 For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but being alive, made alive in the Spirit. That phrase, put to death, death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, I'm just going to make this note because it's, I've, twice I've read this, and it prompted me to want to say something, and I ignored it the first time. And if I don't say it this time, I will forget it the next time. Um, look at chapter 4, verse 6. For to this, the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead. Who's he talking about? He's talking about believers who before Christ had died. Why? So that though they were judged in the flesh, how were they judged? Death is judgment, folks. The wages of sin is death. And barring the Lord's return, every one of us are going to pay that price in a physical sense. Finish the verse. They live in the spirit according to the will of God. So it's talking about their physical death, but their spiritual life. So it's referencing from verse 16, excuse me, verse 18, talking about who Christ is and how that bounces to us in verse 6 of chapter 4. Those that have died before this time. How they still were judged in the flesh through their death, but they were raised in the Spirit, those that were truly believers. Verse 19, in, also, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This, according to one of my favorite Bible teachers, John MacArthur, this is probably one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire book of 1 Peter. I am not going to try. Okay, But I am going to focus on one point. It's the question that's asked. Peter uses the story of Noah as an antitype, an earthly expression of a spiritual reality, to illustrate how Christ's suffering on our behalf enables believers to be safely carried through God's judgment against sin. Remember what was just said, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 6, suffering... Death as judgment, but living in the Spirit as with Christ. So what is Peter, and I'm changing the question that's in the book here. What is Peter comparing the ark's salvation to? Look at verse 21. He starts with baptism and we tend to go, whoa, you're saying I have to be baptized to be saved. But that, then he says, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about the physical baptism. We're not talking about the physical getting wet. We're talking about what? What's he say? The last five words of the verse. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ark of Noah carrying those eight people safely through God's judgment. The only way we can be safely carried through God's judgment is through the resurrection. Because although Christ died for our sins, if he didn't rise again, it's all worthless, folks. We have to have the ark of Christ as our resurrection for our salvation to be established. That's what he's saying. Now, I want to jump to chapter four, and he doesn't spend a whole lot of time here. If you get into the truth for today questions question nine and question ten, that's kind of where I'm going. So if you want to if you have your book and you want to jump ahead to question nine and ten, because um, this is really important. Peter talks about having the same mind towards suffering as Jesus had in his suffering, and he references First Peter four one and two. How can Jesus's example help you when you face trials? Let me read it. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. You hear this military language? It's because we're in a, we're in a war, folks. Arm yourself with the same purpose. What purpose? Christ's purpose in his suffering in the flesh. What was the purpose of Christ's suffering in the flesh? Well, we have to keep reading to find out what that purpose is. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's kind of a thought he's throwing in there in the middle. If you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. But so as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts, But for the will of God. So, what purpose are we to arm ourselves with when we start dealing with our suffering? I said this at the beginning when we were talking about this, and it's coming right back around. God's will for you is that you suffer. Is that hard to hear? There there are six things in Scripture that Scripture says specifically are God's will for you. That you are saved. That you are sanctified. That you are Spirit-filled. That you say thanks. And that you suffer. If you're not suffering it should be a red flag. Now, everybody's suffering is different, right? Um, My suffering, um, for the most part, and Pam will attest to this, my suffering for the most part are the the consequences of having uh, a metal rod, a metal plate, and screws in my leg and dealing with the chronic pain that goes with that on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis something that I had no control of that was not my fault. Some in our church dealing with families destroyed. Some in our church dealing with cancer in in their bodies. Some in our church dealing with children who are not following the faith of their parents. Some of us dealing with difficulties at work. Some of us deal, dealing with difficulties in our children. Some of us dealing with other physical difficulties. God has called you to suffer. Why? What's the role of your suffering? It's God's will. And what's he want to do with it? goes back to chapter 1. Because if we, if we sit on the fact that God wants you to suffer, you can get really depressed over that. But why does he want you to suffer? It's his will. Yes. But in his will, what's the point? Chapter 1. It proves your faith. The suffering that you go through proves your faith. So if you're not suffering, red flag one. Number two, if you are suffering and your faith is not showing up, red flag number two. But if you are suffering and people see God working in your heart through the tears, through the pain, through the things that you're dealing with because we still deal with those things. That's part of our humanness. Christ cried, why shouldn't we? Christ slept, why shouldn't we? Christ ate, why shouldn't we? So quit thinking these physical things of our body means that we're sinful. No, it means that God created us to be dependent on him to provide all of those things. But in that process of the tears and the sorrow Christ sorrowed. Christ lamented. He still gave glory to God. His faith didn't need to be proved. Ours does. And because we forget so much, he has to prove it again and again and again and again. Because I know I'll go through a week have a pretty good week, and then Monday will come, the next Monday will come, and I'll come home griping, complain to Pam about this kid, that kid, this teacher, that administrator. And in that moment, I have forgotten that all of that proves my faith. It didn't prove it that day, and I have to repent of that. This passage explains that those who persecute others will not have the last laugh. I found this a very interesting but dangerous question because we all like to see the bad guy get it, right? Are you going to be honest about this? We all like to see the bad guy get it. Lawyer who has been a pillar in the community for a long time, had this conversation with Pam yesterday, pillar in the community for a long time um, went through his trial determined that he did kill his wife and his son and the judge said that the state refused to give him the death penalty we like it when the evil get what's coming to them and we have to be careful this is why what's the question say In what way does this motivate you to be faithful? Not, well, he should have got, he should have did, they should have done. How does verse five, verse four and five, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. And it's talking about the list of sins, which I could have spent another 10 minutes there because we all think that that's not us because I don't, getting involved with orgies and drinking parties and drunkenness and sensuality for the most part. And, but it ends with abominable idolatries. And I love how he hits these things that we would go, "No, not those big, bad ones," but it says abominable idolatries. and we go, "I oh, well, you know, whatever that is." Idolatry is you putting anything before God. Your children? Your spouse, your job, your toys, your recreation. Anything placed before God in your life is abominable. So it doesn't leave any of us out. Verse 4, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation maligning you but they will give an account to him, give an account. they will make payment in the Greek. They will make a pay- they will make payment to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So how do we respond to that? Uh, flip back to 1 Peter 3:9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I can jump back to Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Never pay, verse 17 through 19, never Pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 19, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to get caught up in what's going on in our world. And you have put justice in our heart because justice comes from your heart. But in our fallenness, Lord, we tend to want to be the the judge and the executioner. Help us when we go through the suffering not to be the one looking for the judgment, but, but to be looking for the blessing that you've promised us. That blessing being the proof of our faith which is more valuable than gold. Help us to love those who persecute us. In Jesus' name, amen.